Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Great skill in playing the violin. And it's just a blessing to have this kind of talent the Lord's given us in the church. And we don't all have musical talent, but we all have a talent. You, you all are free to go if you want to now. <laughs> but it's just a blessing to me to be a part of the church for many reasons like ours, but this is one of them. We read just a moment ago from Isaiah, the 11th chapter, and it talks about the sevenfold aspects of the Spirit on the Messiah who would come. We know that Messiah is Jesus Himself. And we also think about these various elements. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon Him. We saw that in Jesus, did we not? When He was baptized by John the Baptist, Matthew talks about this in the third chapter, as does the Apostle John in the first chapter, and how the Holy Spirit came and descended on Him. The Holy Spirit came in the form of a dove and descended upon him, anointing him, giving him his marching orders as it were, and the power to fulfill those at that point. The Spirit of the Lord rested upon him. And this Spirit is the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Also the Spirit of counsel and of might, and the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then this great prophet goes on to speak on behalf of God that he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Have you ever stopped to think about Jesus as one who delighted in the fear of the Lord? Well, you say he was the Lord and you would be correct in that. He is fully God, but he's also fully human. In his humanity, he submitted himself to the Lord. He feared the Lord. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, the Bible talks about how Jesus says that I have come down from heaven, O God, to do your will. Inherent in doing the will of the Lord is the fear of the Lord. The two are virtually synonymous. And today we're going to turn our attention to the psalm which we read to begin our time of worship, the 112th psalm. So if you We'll find your way there. We're going to look at this in some detail. What we're going to look at, first of all, is the content of the fear of the Lord. And then the large portion of what we're going to be doing today is an exploration of the intent of the fear of the Lord. What happens? and What did God plan regarding the fear of the Lord? The content is found in verse 1. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. In that second line, third line actually in the first verse, we get an insight into the content, the definition, if you will, who greatly delights in His commandments. If you and I are people who understand what it means to fear God, we see that it is synonymous with greatly delighting in His commandments. 
In 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, God's Spirit gives us a succinct, concise description of what it means to be in obedience and greatly delight in the commandments of the Lord. First of all, in 3.23, the Word of God tells us what those commandments are. There are really two. He says that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. That tops the list. That's the entry point of our being able to really fear the Lord. And then he goes on to write and love one another. It follows very naturally, we might say supernaturally, that when we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, Christ comes and he indwells us by his very presence in his life. There is a certain degree of assurance that we are going to love one another. This is the commandment that the Lord left his apostles. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus says, than he lay down his life for his friends. How frequently does Jesus talk about our loving one another? And then in the fifth chapter of 1 John, verse 3, John writes this. The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. To look at some people who apparently are Christians and you look at them on the outside and they look like they're carrying a heavy burden. I mean, they are glum in many cases. Well, the Christian life is not designed for glumness. And the fear of the Lord does not, should not cause us to dread doing what he wants us to do, but to recognize that it's not a burden. In fact, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is a life-giving kind of proposition. The fountain is a life-giving fountain of what God wants for us. So we are to understand this and find freedom in the commandments of the Lord. I think that's what Jesus says in John chapter 8. He says, if you are truly disciples of mine, you shall be my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. A lot of the truth in the word of God are the commandments. If we abide, that carries with it the idea of being in sync with what God would have us to do. So the long and short of what the content of the fear of the Lord is, that we greatly delight in the fear of the Lord. It is a powerful thing to think about the fear of the Lord. Now let's look at at its intent. I'm going to look at a couple of other verses. One found in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7. You don't have to turn there. If you want to, you're welcome to. Most of what I'm going to be talking about this morning comes either from Proverbs or Psalms. And 1-7 says... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, what kind of knowledge is the proverbialist writing about? He's writing about a knowledge that is more than intellectual. It has an intellectual component, but primarily it's a knowledge of relationship. And it's used to describe the way in which we who know the Lord relate to the Lord. When I was a teenager, There was a popular song. I'm not going to sing it, 
but I, I think many of you in my age group or a little younger, maybe a little older will know it. To know, know, know you is to what? Love, love, love you. Thank you. I knew I could get a response. The 11 o'clock group will just look at me dumbfounded and wonder what in the world. It's true to know Jesus and to know God the Father and to know the Holy Spirit. It is to love him, isn't it? And so as we think about this matter of being people who have the option of knowing the Lord and how does it get started? It starts with our fearing the Lord. There are a lot of caricatures and not made by critics of Christianity. They're embraced by critics of Christianity because they see a wrong picture being drawn in our lives for what it means to fear the Lord. And the caricature many times of people who are people who are in touch with the Lord, they have a friendship with God. And by the way, I'm not arguing that. Jesus says, no longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friend. He is intimate with us when we come to know him, right? He shares the secrets of God the Father, the things which he's heard from the Father, he shares with us with the help of the Holy Spirit, I might add, who is our teacher and the one who reveals to us what all that means. But many people have a very casual, too familiar relationship with God. So I don't want to leave the impression that we are to be too friendly with God in the sense of not honoring him and revering him in this matter of fearing him. I'm gonna use two examples, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. Most of you will be familiar with the New Testament, so I'm gonna go ahead and start in reverse order. When John the Apostle on the Isle of Patmos was in the spirit on the Lord's day, Jesus appeared to him. And what was John's response when he saw the Lord? He fell on the ground like a dead man. There was no fist pumping, no chest to chest action there. It was not a high five for Jesus. It was falling on his face before the Lord. The Lord Jesus is a holy God. And we are to have that kind of response. We would have a similar response, I'm sure, if he were to appear to us. Then go to the Old Testament, the fifth chapter of the book of Joshua. Joshua is preparing to invade and conquer the promised land. It was a daunting task which lay before him. And a strange figure shows. And the figure introduces himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. As it turns out, it was really a visitation of the angel of the Lord. And when we look at references to the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, most scholars agree that it's a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus. And so he has this encounter with him and what does he do? Much like John the Revelator in the book of Revelation, he falls on the ground and he quickly assumes the posture of a worshiper. So please understand, this is not a call for us to be buddy-buddy with Jesus. But it is 
a place where we have freedom of communication, when we have a proper perspective on who He is and who we are. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The Bible says in the book of Hosea that the people of God perish for lack of knowledge. And it's talking about that same kind of knowledge that has an intellectual component, but it has a bigger relational component. And God wants us to know Him. Also in Psalm 111 verse 10, this is what the Bible says, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge properly applied leads to wisdom. It affects the way we think, it affects what we say, and it affects, affects the way we live. Wisdom, that's ours too. It's wonderful to think about. In Proverbs 19, 23, this is what the Word of God says. This is so encouraging. In Proverbs 19, 23, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord leads to life. And the person who finds the fear, the person who has it, the fear of the Lord rests satisfied. Isn't it wonderful to know that we have at our desire to submit to the Lord, we have this kind of satisfaction? In the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, one of the Beatitudes is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We know who our righteousness is. Who is He? If we know Christ, Jesus is our righteousness. And we have Him, and we can be satisfied to rest satisfied. Actually, I think the rest of this passage of Scripture gives us a depiction of what it really is to be resting in a satisfied state. Are you hungering and thirsting for more satisfaction in your life? You do not need to look any further, nor do I, than to this whole matter of fearing the Lord. So many people will say, well, that's passe. That's Old Testament, the fear of the Lord. Well, I beg your pardon. It's in your New Testament too. Read it. It's there. We are to understand the importance of this fearing of the Lord and enter into the joy of it, by the way. There's a book that I read many years ago by Jerry Bridges. I recommend it to you. It's called The Joy of Fearing the Lord. To the uninitiated, that sounds like a contradiction. The joy of fearing the Lord? Absolutely because there is great joy which accompanies the fear of the Lord. A little later in the book of Proverbs 22, verse 3, I believe it is, the Bible says that the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. That sounds like joy to me, doesn't it to you? Yeah, Jesus says, I have come that you might have life. I am the life, he said and that you might have it abundantly. And the idea of abundantly is the idea, it's a mathematical term actually, that there will never be a moment in time or eternity when that abundance will run out because it is in effect the person of Jesus and also the person 
of the Holy Spirit, who is described as the spirit of life, the embodiment of life. Let's now take a look at the particulars of these, the intent of our being men and women who fear the Lord. Let's begin with verse 2. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Well, we all have, most of us at least, not everybody here does, but most of us have children. Some of us are old enough to have grandchildren. There probably would be a few people present today who have great-grandchildren. And we need to understand that God gave these children to us for the purpose of becoming people who fear the Lord and know and grow in the Lord. There's more than one person present here, I would imagine, who has had a child who was wayward or has a child for whom she or he has been praying and claiming the promises of God. Well, look, if the child is out there, wherever that may be, away from the Lord, not fearing the Lord, that child is not beyond the reach of the Spirit of God to touch his or her heart, to draw her or him back to himself. And we not, need not to give up on our children. We need to believe God and trust God to hear our prayers and to fulfill this promise. Our responsibility is to fear the Lord. That's it to understand what that means, to greatly delight in his commandments, not to be a curmudgeon when it comes to the word of God or how to live the Christian life, not always to be negative, but be men and women who are exhibits of the fear of the Lord and the consequent joy of the Lord, the reward that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. And we want a generation, we need a generation, do we not, coming up? This generation of young men and young women who will become the, at the vanguard of a renewal in our country and in our world. As we sang one of the songs which we sang, I was touched when it talked about holy hands being lifted and then how on every shore there are people who are lifting holy hands. Continent, 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 every continent Every island that's inhabited with any number of people, there are believers there today. We have a tendency as Americans to think we are the only ones who really have this kind of relationship with God. Forget about it. If you want to get a good opportunity to appreciate what God's doing in the world, begin to look at what God's doing elsewhere. And we want to be part of that vanguard that God would use to bring back people and bring people to himself. And the key for us is to do what? To fear the Lord. And then to pray for our children. Claim the promises of God in the word of God. There are so many promises. Read the book of Isaiah. Tremendous book, of course, filled with promise. And even in this passage of scripture and the Psalms and the Proverbs, let's claim these promises because that's the intent of God. And then the second thing we see here in verse 3, wealth and riches are in his house. Now, some of you say, hey, 
I don't have two pennies to rub together. I'm just making it from paycheck to paycheck. I don't believe God ordains that everyone be wealthy. You might say, well, why not, Mike? I don't know. I remember Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof. Do you remember him? He said, if I were a rich man. I'm not going to go any further than that, but I love that part of the movie. And he says, at one point, he stops right in the middle, and he says, if money is a curse, just curse me one time, Lord. Right? Poverty is not what it's all cracked up to be, for sure. But what we do know is the Bible is abundantly clear that if we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all the necessities of life will be ours. And when we are divested of a lot of the things that come with wealth, we're really freer to serve the Lord. Because the more stuff I have accumulated over my long life, I see how distracting they, those things are. I've got a bag full of books I'm giving away today. Not to any of you, so don't come rushing me afterwards. I've got someone picked out, a young man who's sensing the leadership to become a pastor. So I went through and culled out, and I've got so many books, it's ridiculous. I accumulate them, and it takes all my time to keep up with the accumulation that I don't read like I ought to. But the good news for us is the promise of God is that if we know the Lord, we're going to have everything we need. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. The reason I say that, well, we've looked at something already today, but if we were to go to 1 John, excuse me, 1 Timothy, the sixth chapter, what we would see is that the Bible talks about God gives us everything richly to enjoy. Isn't it nice to be blessed by the Father and He gives us wealth and riches to enjoy? But what the greater riches that we have are found in what Paul writes to the Ephesians when he says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In Christ, blessing, immense blessing. And we will have that. No one can take that away from me or for you. No from, or from you. No one can do that because of the promises. And the book of Ephesians is one of many expressions of this treasure trove of riches. In Isaiah 33, 6, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. We fear God. That is enough. To fear Him is to know Him. Correct? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And to know Him is to love Him. To know Him is to know that He is a God who has selected us to be part of His family and then to be used by Him. There's nothing like being used by the Lord. Would you agree? You know what that means when you have obeyed the Lord and you have seen Him affirm you in your obedience and He gives you other opportunities. Wealth and riches are in the house of the person who fears the Lord. The next part of this 
Psalm says, and his righteousness endures forever. Now I'd like you to hold your place here just a moment. We're going to get out of the Psalms and Proverbs for just a minute. We're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 32. This is the section of the prophet Jeremiah's writing, which has to do with the new covenant. The way that God is predicting how there is coming a time. It was 500 plus years before this came to pass, but it was a great promise from the Lord. And it came to pass in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'd like you to look at verse 40 of Jeremiah 32. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. He's talking about his people of whom we are a part with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. God the Father builds in to this new covenant, which is awesome in seen in the person and work of Jesus, how the gospel is given to us, how he takes the initiative. But not only does he take the initiative in saving us, but he works in the process of sanctification too. Why? He puts the fear of God in the hearts of those whom he loves. Isn't that wonderful to have a father like that? And God wants that. He doesn't simply want it. He's going to get it is what the scripture seems to indicate to me. It's rather clear, isn't it? And going back to Psalm 112, looking at that one line in the last part of verse three, and his righteousness endures forever. God's not going to pull the plug on his righteousness in your life. He's not going to take Jesus out of your life. If you know him, he's going to see to it. There are rough patches along the way, but he's going to bring you back, make adjustments. He makes adjustments in my life, and I would imagine in many of your lives every day. It's not just occasionally, because when I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit that I have a wrong attitude or say the wrong thing or speak in the wrong tone, and anything I do, what does he do? He convicts me, and what do I do if I'm responding? I come back and I confess it to the Lord. I say, Lord, there I went again. Please, Lord, please help me to get right and get rid of this behavior. And sometimes it seems like he's never going to help me to overcome. But in his way, in his time, he does. Why? It's because... He has put it in my heart and yours too, if you know him, that he's going to bring you back. He'll discipline you. And the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is a disciplinary action on the part of God. And sometimes we get way far afield. But that requires a bigger dose of discipline for us to get us back. But he does keep us coming back. Would you say that is a positive thing? Well, absolutely it is. Let's look at verse 4. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. People who know the Lord and are walking in dependence upon the Lord, people who fear the Lord are people who are bright people. And I'm not talking about 
bright intellectually. I'm talking about their countenance is bright. They light up. They are interested in other people. And people are drawn to them. Have you ever heard someone say that another person who is not a believer, and the person that I'm portraying here probably would not say it because the person is a person of humility. But have you ever heard someone say that another person was attracted to him or her because of the brightness of the countenance of the individual? Not like it's shown with light, although I've heard people say that about other people who know and love the Lord. They shone. There was something about them that was different than most of people or maybe anyone I'd ever known or seen. That brightness is the presence of the Lord. Jesus is the light of the world, is he not? And he indwells us. And he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The ninth of the tenth plagues that God used to finally liberate the Israelites from over 400 years of slavery. The ninth plague was the plague of darkness, a darkness, the Bible says, which could be felt. And the Bible talks about how every Egyptian household, there was no light. It was so dark that they couldn't move and they couldn't see anyone else. They were just stymied by the darkness. Maybe you're here today and you feel a great darkness in your heart, gloominess. Well, the best way out is to fear the Lord. That's where it begins. Fear the Lord. Greatly delight in His commandments. Remember what the first commandment is? That you believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that idea of belief is not an idea of head knowledge. It includes understanding that Christ died for your sins, that he was buried, he was resurrected on the third day, he ascended into heaven. Those things are part of the gospel, big time. But it's a matter of receiving Christ into your heart, opening your life and holding nothing back and saying to Jesus, Lord, you deserve this place in my life. I don't deserve you to come in, but you deserve it, and I'm opening my heart to you. Well, we understand that when Christ comes in, he lights us up. In that particular incident, the ninth plague, it's found in the 10th chapter of Exodus. After having said that all the households of Egypt were characterized by darkness, then this is what the writer goes on to say. He says, but there, it's, it's something that we just miss so easily because it's so simple and seemingly incidental. It says, but there was light in the dwellings of Israel. Why was there light? The Bible says about God, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Our lives and our homes, if we know Christ, should have a certain level of light in them that enables the inhabitants of the family to have light 
shine on them and encourage them, but also to be a witness in the community as well. well let's go back to our text. Verse four. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. This is talking about the Lord whom we're to fear. And of course, we know what the Bible says about Jesus, that the word speaking of him became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. He is gracious. That's true of Jesus, isn't it? As it is of the father and the spirit and compassionate. That's grace and righteous. That's truth. Typically, ordinarily, we who claim to be Christians fall to one side of the extreme of the other. We are all truth. Believe me, Jesus is full of truth. We're to be men and women of truth. The word of God is truth. How are we sanctified? Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. We love that God has given us the truth we're studying today. He's ministering to us. But we need to guard against becoming pharisaical and reducing the Christian life to a bunch of rules. That's one tendency people who are Christians tend to lean toward. The other tendency is the tendency to be all grace. And anything goes. Whatever you want to do, do it because you're free in Christ. We are free in Christ. But we're not to use our freedom as a ticket to misbehaving as children of God. Rather, it is a ticket to be free not to sin as opposed to sin. Jesus is this kind of person and he is living in us. He is our righteousness. In 1 John chapter 1, we know this great verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then in the first couple of verses in chapter 2, this is what John the Apostle writes, I write these things to you, dear children, so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is ultimately righteous. He is our advocate. Do you know the word advocate? Actually, the meaning of that is he is our defense attorney. Satan accuses us. And he has the goods on us when we sin as children of God. He accuses us. He accuses us day and night, the Bible says. So we have this wonderful defense attorney. If I ever went to court and I was accused of crime and I could hire the son, the beloved son of the judge who's making the decision, I would do it because he has an end with the judge, right? And our Lord Jesus is that person in his relationship with the Father. He is the propitiation for our sin. He's paid for it. And therefore, when we are accused by the enemy, then the Lord interposes his work on our behalf. And he lives to make intercession for us just as surely as the devil lives to condemn us as believers when we do sin. He is our righteousness. Is this a benefit to you and me? By all means. This is what comes to us if we fear the Lord. Let's go ahead and look 
at verse six, five rather. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. Well, that needs very little explanation. It's just true. Let's look at verse seven. We'll hit this last idea a little bit later in the text. Verse six also says, he will maintain his cause in judgment. That would be God would maintain our cause in judgment. He will be with us. Verse six says, for he will never be shaken. This is talking about the man or woman who is a God-fearer. He, she will never be shaken. This reminds me of Psalm 55, 22, where the word of God says that we are cast our burden on the Lord and he will care for us. And he will not let us be shaken. When we have difficulty, and we do in this world, what are we to do with it? Cast the burden on the Lord. That's what the scripture says. And quite frankly, a careful study of the word translated burden will yield this information. I was shocked when I read it, but I was educated at the same time and understood it. This has been many years ago, probably 30, 40 years ago. And the word burden means what he has given you. Cast what he has given you upon the Lord and he will sustain you. When I have trouble, I'm in the process of learning. I haven't learned this fully, but I understand it in, with my mind and I have seen how the Lord has used it. When I have trouble, instead of whining and crying about it initially, what I'm hoping to grow in is to come to the Lord and say, well, Lord, you have given this to me, this challenge, and so help me to really offload it on you because you're the only one who's capable of taking it and turning it into something that's good for your glory and also good for me because it causes me to trust you more fully. This is the life of the person who fears the Lord. He will never, she will never be shaken. Verse six goes on to say the righteous will be remembered forever. Well, when you and I die, we had a funeral here yesterday. It was a beautiful memorial tribute to a 95-year-old woman who knew and loved the Lord. And she will be remembered by her four children, her seven grandchildren, and to a lesser degree by her 12 great-grandchildren. But she will be remembered by them. But truth be told, she probably won't be remembered too far beyond the third generation. But we will be remembered. Where has your name been written if you know Jesus? Where is it to be found? It's written in the book of life. And the Lord will never forget you. In the book of Isaiah, the Bible talks about even if my mother forgets me, the Lord will not forget me. He says, I won't forget you because I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your name, you're that important to the Lord. And this is another one of the benefits or the intentions of the Lord. For us, benefit if we fear the Lord. 
verse 7, he will not fear evil tidings. I've already touched on this. The reason we don't have to fear evil tidings is because we know the Father has a way of turning the tables on the devil. The devil is the bearer of those evil tidings indirectly, or maybe sometimes directly, but what we know is the Lord has other purposes. His heart is steadfast. This would be the God-fearer. Her heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. The word trust, trusting is the same word that Solomon uses in Proverbs 3, 5, when he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And that word for trust is a very graphic word in the sense it was used to describe a conquered army and how they bowed themselves in submission to the conquering warrior and his army. And this is a picture of our being in that position of submission to the Lord. And we are to be understanding that we trust in the Lord in that kind of humility. And we have a heart that can stay the course when evil tidings come our way. We're not shattered. Momentarily, yes. We've all taken hard hits. And we're human. And so we feel those hard hits. But if we understand the fear of the Lord, and we know Him, we grow in knowledge of Him, then He is able to use that to transform us. Verse 8 says, His heart is upheld, He will not fear, until, until He looks with satisfaction on His adversaries. Well, we're not supposed to get revenge, are we? Sometimes we'd like to, but we're not to do that. And the Bible is replete with examples of how when people refused to take the matter of revenge into their own hands and they left it with the Lord, the result was total victory. Total victory. The most prominent idea, and I'll just encourage you to find it and read about it, was about Elisha when he and his servant were surrounded by the king of Syria's army and they were goners as far as the servant was concerned but Elisha said Lord open his eyes let him see and there was another army that was more powerful than that army it was an invisible army to most people but it was an army that surrounded wasn't it surrounded them chariots of fire and the result was the people who were in the other army were blinded they were taken into the citadel of Samaria, the capital of Israel. They were fed according to the instruction of the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, what are you to do? What does the Bible say? Feed him. If she is thirsty, what are you to do? Give her a drink. Do a deed of kindness to the people who are your enemies. This is what we need to understand. And when we look at this passage of Scripture where it says his heart, the God-fearer's heart is upheld, he will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. Let me stop here just a moment. And if we were to take time to go to 1 Corinthians 16, what we would see is Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he's wanting to come to see them. He is intent upon seeing them. But as he writes this, he says, I'm going to wait a while because there has been a 
wide door for effective ministry that has been open for me and my companions, but there are many adversaries. When you and I are doing the work of the Lord, we can be sure that there will be a multiplication of adversaries. They will come against us because they hate the Lord and they hate people who do the work of the Lord. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world. So we need to have the insight to still be able to do kindness to our enemies, but realize the real culprit or culprits would be Satan and his minions. But we can overcome, we will overcome those enemies. Verse 9 says, He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. I invite you to go to Proverbs 22 for just a moment. Verse 9. Proverbs 22, 9 says this. He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. I believe that. Do you believe that? I believe even the poorest person can give something to someone who's poorer to help them. And remember, this commandment is especially applicable to the context of the church. We're to help each other. We're not to say, she made her bed, let her lie in it. She may have, or he may have. But we need to come in compassion and correction if necessary. But we need to be willing to give of what we have. My favorite story of this, and you may have heard me tell it too many times already, but I'm going to tell it again because some of you have not heard it, and if you heard it, you've forgotten it. But it's a story about Mark Hatfield. Mark Hatfield, for many years, was a senator from the state of Washington and a Christian, and he went to visit Mother Teresa on official business, but Really, it was a personal visit. He wanted to meet this woman and see what kind of work she and those who were part of her team was doing. And so what she did with him, she took him and showed what they were doing in feeding widows. And there was a widow who came and she was asked, how many children do you have? And there was a certain measurement that was measured out for every child. He watched this and he saw her walk away, this woman who had been given some food. And he said he was astonished when he saw her walk not too many yards away. And then she took what rice she was given and divided it in half with another widow. Afterwards, when the day had ended, Mother Teresa said, Senator, do you have any questions for me? And she said, he said rather, yes. Why didn't you just give the other widow the equivalent amount that you had given to the first widow? Because you had plenty. And she said, I didn't want to deprive her of the privilege of sharing with someone else. Because the Lord would, replay, would replace that. This is the message of the scripture. The Lord's going to take us care of us if we care for each other. Perhaps the most powerful demonstration of love in the book of Acts 
and powerful in the sense that great fruit was born from it, was when the Bible talks about how there was no one in the body of Christ, the newly born body of Christ. There were people who were indigent in that group, evidently, but they shared their things with each other. This is one of the benefits of being in a community group. You'll get to know people. They won't be just a name and a face. They'll be a person that has issues in his or her life. It's not a place to come and talk about that all the time. But if you get to know people, you know what I'm talking about. You are drawn to help them. The man or woman who fears God gives freely to the poor. That person's righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. I'm going to requote a verse here as we finish. It's all in the book of Proverbs. I believe it's 22.3. I didn't write the reference down. I believe that's it. The reward of the reward to humility and the fear of the Lord are honor, riches, and life. This is ours. This is what it means to be a person and a people who fear the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the Word of God. Thank you that you leave nothing to the imagination, really, Father. When it comes to this, it's rather clear. So we ask that we would be men and women who are on the alert for every opportunity to truly fear you and to also be conscious of people around us who are not yet there. Use us by our example and by the word of truth in the gospel to help them come to a position of fearing you as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.